Lord God, Heavenly Father, as you sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for our Savior, so we wait in Advent for the coming of our Lord. Yes, to celebrate his coming in the flesh to be our Savior, but also we celebrate as we wait for his coming at the end of days when he might claim us as his very own, that we might taste of the fruits of his work on the cross and live forever with you in paradise. So as we wait for that coming, we spend time in your word, meditating on the truth that you've given to us, trusting that when we spend time in your word, your spirit comes to us to give us faith, to forgive our sins, and to strengthen our hope in our Savior Jesus. So work that once again as we study your word now this day. In Jesus' name. Okay, so uh, we are in John 6. Like I said, we've started this chapter three times now. We'll see if we can get past the first verse. Um, We keep going back. We meaning probably me at this point. But uh, we will read John 6. So it's the feeding of the 5,000. So someone want to read that for us? John 6, verses 1 through 14. following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to him, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them them, to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Okay, thank you very much. Good. Um, So, feeding the 5,000, like we've talked about before, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, the feeding the 5,000. This is the only one that's in all four Gospels. And the reason why is something that a lot of people like to discuss, but I don't know why. It just is. So, something about that. But it, it is in all four Gospels. Um, you know of the, also of the feeding of the 4,000, which is in Matthew and Mark, but not in Luke or John. And most of the Gospels link the feeding of 5,000 to the walking on water, but Luke doesn't have a walking on water. So, um, this kind of stands out as uniquely... Uh, shared by all four gospel accounts of Jesus. Of course, the other thing that's shared by all the gospel accounts is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, 
Um, yeah, there you go. This is John's version though, and John's version is a little different than the other versions that you'll read. Um, in your mind, you probably have conflated all of them into one story, which is fine. You know, we do that sometimes. Um, we do that with the passion narrative during Lent. We often will put kind of smush them all together and try to make it one long story. But even the, the story of, of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, his death and his resurrection are different in all four Gospels too. They all have the same basic parts and it's obviously the same story, but they're from different points of view, so they bring out different aspects. And that's what we see here in the Feeding 5,000 is that John is going to tell this story in a different way than the other Gospels because he's trying to bring out these themes that he's been helping us read through so far in his Gospel. Does that make sense? Okay, and, and obviously that's what we're going to spend our time doing is looking at these themes that he wants us to think through. So, number one, why does Jesus ask Philip a question? Right. It says to test him. Okay? So what does that mean? How is he testing Philip? Test him about what? Okay, is Jesus able to provide? Why would Philip think Jesus can provide? Has he done this yet? Has Jesus fed anybody so far in this gospel? Where? Where? You say yes. I'm not saying you're wrong. He might have. Woman at the well. What does he say he's going to give her? Water. Does he? No. Doesn't actually give her anything. He just talks about it and they walk away and leave their water jars there. No water. Does he provide when people need something at any point in this gospel so far? Right, the wedding at Cana, they're actually out of wine and he provides wine. So maybe he's thinking you guys should have gotten this from the first miracle that you've seen, right? The wedding at Cana. But he hasn't really fed anybody yet with food that will actually help them live. Maybe help them party, but not help them live. So um, it's kind of a strange question. But don't forget that he has just told them that he is the one that Moses wrote about. Okay? So he is, he is trying to get the, the disciples to trust that he is the one that Moses wrote about. Good. So then when you start thinking about the one Moses wrote, you think about the, the story of Moses in the wilderness, now you start thinking manna from heaven, which he's going to address explicitly starting verse 22. Okay, and so exactly. So now you're starting to think back through where is the manna from heaven? In Exodus, good. So now you're going to start thinking back through the entire story of the Exodus. And this is what the Gospel of John, the writer of John, whose name is John, wants you to be doing at this time is to be thinking through the entire story of the Exodus. And what Jesus is asking Philip is, do you believe that I am the one who came to save God's people from that which enslaves them? That Jesus is God's salvation act for his people. Do you believe that? That's what he's getting the disciples to think through. Now, do they understand that? 
No, they're totally clueless. They're going, well, eight months worth of wages wouldn't buy enough bread. And Jesus goes, Ugh. Ugh. right? But that's the way it goes. The disciples, and, and this is common in all the Gospels, especially in Mark, but it's true in all the Gospels. The disciples don't get it. They never get it. I mean, even when they get it, they mess it up. Peter's like, yeah, you're the Christ. And then Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to go do this. And he goes, no, you're not. You're not allowed to go do that. Well, he obviously doesn't believe he's actually the Christ if he's going to start telling him what he can and can't do. So the disciples just don't get it. Until when? When did the disciples actually get it? What's that? What's that? Okay, good. Which is after what? The death and resurrection. Once they see the death and resurrection, they start putting pieces together. But those pieces still don't make sense until Pentecost is one time and another time is when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. See, both these times, it's the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promises will happen, that when the Holy Spirit comes, then he puts all the pieces together. The Holy Spirit teaches them to go back and go, oh, oh, I get it now, right? And then that's why they write the Gospels and go out and proclaim the truth of the Gospel is because the Holy Spirit puts all the pieces together that they, they lived for three years, all the stuff they've read in the Old Testament, all those things that Jesus said, they go, oh, see, this is what God was up to the whole time. And they don't go back and, and change the history and say... You know, Matthew doesn't write his gospel and say, well, I got it the whole time. These other idiots had no idea. He doesn't say that. He actually includes himself in the company of those who didn't get it. Because the story isn't about Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, that's the good news. And that's what we're getting to is that Jesus has just told us, look, you're going to go to the Old Testament scriptures to get life. That's, that's fine. Understand when you do that, they are written about me because Moses wrote about me and he's going to actually now live that out. Moses writing about Jesus. He's going to show them. That's what John 6 is. Okay? So he says this to Philip to see if Philip is actually going to believe this, that Jesus is the one that's written about. And what does Philip do? He... He does what we would all do. He looks around and interprets Jesus according to his experience. My version says, where will we find right? Yeah. So that kind of lends an answer to, we need money to do it. Right. Yeah, and he goes on and he says, 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough bread for all these people. There, there's no way. So... Would this be a common thing, though, that people would travel around, like, without food? Like, I'm thinking even the boy carrying five loaves and two fish seems like an odd thing to carry. Well, he's carrying his lunch, okay. basically. So he's got, he, he brought his, his mom was like, you know, bring your lunch with you. And he, mm -hmm. whatever he's out to do, he goes out and he hears Jesus and starts listening or mm -hmm. joins the crowd or whatever. So they, some people carried lunch with them just mm -hmm. like we would. But... You know, most people apparently didn't have any. So when Jesus says, where are we to buy bread for all these people to eat? Right? That's what you're getting at. The answer is, the correct answer is, 
I don't know, Jesus, why don't you tell us how we're going to do this, right? Actually trust in him, not trust in money, because not only are we reading Exodus, and this is what I, I know, this gets really complicated really quickly, but remember that when we're thinking of Exodus in the New Testament, this is true for Mark and John and a lot of Paul, when you're thinking of the Exodus story, you're actually going to read the Exodus through the words of Isaiah. Because remember, Isaiah is the big prophet that the New Testament reads through. And Isaiah 55, we're going to go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 55, verse 1. This, Scott, this is actually answering your question, believe me. It's not, it's not just obfuscating. Isaiah 55. What's that? Isaiah before or after Psalms? After. Thank you. Yep. Keep going that way. Toward the New Testament. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Read the next verse too, why not? Uh, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. See see what he says? It's don't waste your money on this bread that can't satisfy. Instead, what does he say? Listen to me. This is the transition and you're going this is John 6. Physical food is useless to give you life. What actually gives you life is the Word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy. Okay? So all of this is kind of wrapped into this idea of Jesus saying, how are we going to do this? And Philip is not thinking in terms of Isaiah and Deuteronomy and the Exodus, he's thinking in terms of potluck. Right? I'm stuck. Jesus asked me to take care of this and I don't have enough money. Matter of fact, if we pool all of our money, we don't have enough money to do this. Besides, where are we going to go to get enough food for 5,000 people on the hillside by the Sea of Galilee? Right. Kind of. Right. Do we actually? I mean, this is this is the remarkable thing in Matthew, where Jesus says, "If you're worried about what you're going to eat or what you drink or what you're going to wear, open a savings account and get a good job and work hard." He doesn't say that. What does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all those things we added to you. And we do the opposite. We say, we're going to take care of our physical needs first. And then we'll do all that Jesus stuff. And Jesus says, that's entirely backwards. Can any of you actually work hard and save enough money to add one hour to your life? Can any of you actually preserve your life? Can any human actually preserve your life? Can any science or any medicine or anything that we come up with as people actually change how long you're going to live? 
you're all saying no because you're in Sunday school, but you know what? If you're outside of this building, you're going, yeah. If I take that pill or go through that procedure or trust that or eat these kind of foods or change my diet or exercise a lot, then I'll add time. We, we say this. I'm adding days to my life by running. No, you're not. No, you're not. Stop deceiving yourself into thinking that you're in charge of all this stuff. Don't you believe in God? Do you? Do you actually trust that he's in charge of how many days you have? As the scriptures say, teach us the number of days are right. Because we don't control how long we live. Who controls that? God. So do you really think that if you spend all of your time focusing on Christ, reading his words, serving him, being righteous, living out your life as he desires, that he's going to be like, oh, I totally forgot to feed you. Oh. No, this is the whole point, is that we think we have to feed ourselves then God will, you know, whatever, and we can take care of him on the side. No, he says that's wrong. Trust in me for everything, and the feeding will come along with it. Right? And then you say, oh, great. So all I have to do is sit in my house and read the Bible. And Paul says, he who does not work does not eat. eat. Right? Because sitting in your room by yourself reading your Bible and just saying you're pleasing God is not what God has called you to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength and love your neighbor yourself. You don't get to pick one over the other. That's the Christian life. It's all. Notice who's missing from all that. Me. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of loving me in there. When we say, I'm going to love me first, and then God, and then the people I can stand. Right? And it's the exact opposite. But God gave us a brain to utilize on the diet and the exercise. And I don't think so. I don't, that's not, in, I don't know, I read that in the Bible. I mean, that's nice. I have heard that my whole life, but I don't read that in the scriptures. I don't read where it says, God gave your brain, use it. I, I, I understand that premise. I've been taught that my whole life too, but I kind of read the Bible and go, I don't see that. I don't see where God says it. God says, I gave you a brain. Serve me with it. Love me. Love your neighbor. But you don't think those things will add quality to life? Physical? It might be fun. But you're not changing how long you're actually going to live. I think according to scripture, we have to confess that God is the one who decides how long we live and, how long, and when we die. Right? But you're think you're actually in charge of how long you live? Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of us do. That's a part of the problem. Taking care of our body is just obedience to God. The purpose of it is different. It's not to add life, but it's to take care of ourselves. Where? In the body. Where? Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's right, so don't have sex. Outside of marriage. That's exactly what the passage says. The passage is not, therefore, worship your body. It's, then don't sleep with a prostitute. Because you're inviting a non-believer into God's holy temple. You can't do that. That's the point of the, of the Bible, of the passage that says temple of the Holy Spirit. We, we can't just take passages and make them serve our needs in Western society and say, it says this, therefore that. I'm not being mean. I'm just saying, 
when, when we actually start asking these questions, it's amazing what the scriptures do and don't say. We assume that it has to say all these things because that's what we want it to say, but guess what? It doesn't. It actually points us to focus all of our faith on God. Now, you know what it says? Take the members of your body and use them to serve the church. That's what we're supposed to do with our bodies to serve the church. Serve the church. So why do I want to be in good physical condition? So I can serve the church. Right. Yeah. So, so then we get, I mean, we're never going to know John 6 this way. See what happens? <laughs> it's just one little question. And, and what happens is, is we take all these physical gifts that are gifts of God and we worship the gift that he's given us instead of the one who gives the gift. And instead of focusing on the gift we've been given, what we're supposed to do is, is see the one who gave us the gift and, and help everyone that we know understand that the gifts they've been given have been given by that same God who gives gifts. Right? It's not for me to show off how great my gift is. Which, by the way, it isn't. It's kind of all messed up and getting old and dying. But it's to say, look at the glory of the giver of the gifts. Look at who he is. Look at how good our God is. Which is exactly what Jesus is saying to Philip. Is There's all these people we have to feed. Where is our focus? And Philip goes, money and how to feed them. And Jesus goes... I think I just told you that the entire Old Testament was written about me. Let's try that. Okay? I hope he's freaking out. It's okay. You guys okay? Well, you know my issue. Yes, I do. So what do you do when you have a chronic disease that lies dormant and it comes back? Repeat. You know? You, you deal with the doubt. Uh-huh. Yep. I mean, it knocks you to your knees. Yep. It takes you to the very core of your soul. Yep. And you just cry out, help me. Yes. And that's called faith. That's called faith. It's like Yeah. So this is, why, this is why we have a theology of the cross and not the theology of glory. Because the theology of glory would say, you know God loves you when life is good. Right? And the more your life is good, the more you can say, oh, someone out there must really love me. And we say, I don't think that's actually the way it works. I think I know God's love when I know there is no other place for me to turn because my life is so stinking awful. And when my life gets so rough that I'm not even totally sure there is a God, then you're where? What happens when you lose your faith because of your circumstances? Do you know anybody who did that? I think we're trying to hold God to our So what happens when, when you lose your faith in God and you cry out in the desperation of your soul hoping that there's a God? You ever heard anybody say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
See, and this is the point, is that our God is revealed to us not in the goodness of things, but in suffering, in the travails of life, in the desperation of life. It's hard to find God when life is good because I'm so distracted by the good pizza that I can't see God. But when life stinks, what do you do? Even if you don't believe there is a God anymore, what do you do? You're like, I'll try it. I'm telling you, I walked into a hospital room of an avowed atheist who hates pastors, hates Christians, hates the Bible. And after 20 minutes, I said to him, do you mind if I read you some scripture and pray with you? He goes, it can't hurt. (laughs) Because he was dying. And I said, no, it's not going to hurt, but it might help. So he read about Jesus his death and his resurrection. And I said, can I pray with you? And he said, I hope it's true. I hope that's true. I said, me too. And we pray. An atheist who hates Christians. Because when we are fallen and broken and we have nothing else, we sure hope there's a God. And that he's this God. The God that comes to sinners in the brokenness, the God who has conquered death. Don't forget that. This is the God who conquers death. This is the God who conquers illness. This is the God who conquers fill in the blank. Right? That's the God you have. And I don't know. I don't know how to navigate this life. Let's not be dishonest about this. I don't know how to navigate life. I don't know what to do about chronic illness and doctors. I don't know. Seems like they have some benefit. Seems like sometimes they go too far. I don't know. That's kind of what sinners do, right? We take good gifts of God and we go too far with them. Doesn't mean they're bad gifts. It just means sometimes we go too far. Okay. So you kind of figure out how, you, how do you work through it. But, but even as we're working through it, we never think that I'm the one running the show here. If God chooses to work through a medicine to bless you and take care of you, what do you do? You say, thank you. Great. Thanks. Thanks, God. This is a blessing. If he decides to not work through all that, what do you do? Okay. Teach me to teach me to deal with the way you've given me to live out my life. Teach me to bear this cross today. And teach me to be sympathetic to the people around me that might be bearing crosses that I don't know about. Right? Maybe people are walking around with weights on their shoulders that I have no idea about. And, and, it's, and it's not to say, why can't you be happy? Why can't you be living this? No, it's to say, do you know about our God? Do you know about our Savior Jesus? Do you know about the one for, about whom Moses wrote? Right? Does it make sense? When it talks about like, loving your neighbor, always, you know, it's always hard because it's not really... Yeah. It's like they're not even a believer. Or they're not even believers. You know, or believers is it to love believers or is it to love all or is it to it doesn't really it doesn't Jesus seems to fight against the definition of neighbor. He just kind of seems to say it's anybody that you encounter. I mean that's the pair of the Good Samaritan, is they're kind of trying to defi- defy neighbor and say, I can find a way out of this. And Jesus kind of goes, You can't find a way out of this. When I say love your neighbor, it just kind of means Whoever you encounter today, 
in whatever circumstance you encounter them, love them, right? And sometimes it's easy because we like them and they're our friends and they're our fellow Christians. Other times it's people that, that hate us. And how do you love them? That's, a, that's the question that the church helps us, helps each other with as we discuss this, this is that, um, you know, loving neighbor is not always easy. So how do we do that? Just know I'm here. Right. And it always helps. So going back to the body of the temple of the Holy Spirit, because that was a good point, and I don't want to just blow it off. It, that's a good point. So what we do is, because, and that the context is sacrality in that passage, but what Paul is saying in that whole thing is that when you believe, and this is John, 5, John 6, when you believe that Christ lives in you, in your body, Right by the power of the Holy Spirit, you receive the Lord's Supper. The Spirit lives in you. All these kind of passages. Then, what do you do with your body? You can't mistreat your body on purpose, because it's something that God has made and has sanctified by His presence. So we don't want to elevate the body, and we also don't want to just denigrate the body, because when He says in the temple of the Holy Spirit, the overall point is this is something that God has sanctified. Right. So you don't, you don't worship it, but you also don't just poo-poo it. These bodies are gifts of God to us. Treat them as such. Does that make sense? So it's, it's a balance. It's a balance. And, you know, we are, in our society right now, we are definitely shifting the balance toward worshiping our bodies. And then some people are shifting balance to neglecting their bodies and abusing their bodies. And we say, no, no, no. Neither one of those is, is doing what God wants us to do with our bodies. He wants them to see them as he wants us to see them as a gift from him, right? To serve others with. To praise him and serve others with. Does that make sense? Okay. Number two. That was number one. I don't know how that got to all of number one, but there it is. Number two, what meal is associated with Passover? The Lord's Supper. Okay? So now what we're doing is we're, is we're going from... Where in the Bible do you read about the Passover? Exodus. Good. So now another Exodus theme, but it's, it's helping us think ahead to the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, or communion, or whatever you want to call it, okay? Mass, okay? So the Lord's Supper is, as we read through John 6, you're going to have all these phrases that kind of make you go, is he talking about the Lord's Supper? Okay? And all these things are going to happen in John 6 where you kind of go, this sounds a little bit like the Lord's Supper. What's missing from John's Gospel? The Lord's Supper. It's just not there. What other sacrament is missing in John's Gospel? Baptism. It's just not there. So have you read anything that made us want to go, huh, this kind of sounds like baptism. Remember in John chapter 3? No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And we went, huh, that kind of sounds like baptism. Well, now in John 6, we're hearing a lot of stuff that kind of sounds like the Lord's Supper. 
Now, was John 3 actually the institution of holy baptism? No. And is John 6 actually the institution of the Lord's Supper? No. But as the church, we read these texts and we go, huh, that kind of sounds like the Lord's Supper. So do that. As we read through all this, it's good to stop and go, huh, that kind of sounds like that. And that's exactly what you're supposed to be thinking. Okay? Which is exactly what we're also supposed to be thinking with all these Exodus things. He's not saying that he actually is the Exodus. What he's saying is, when you read this, remember what God did in the Exodus, and read all of that as a prophecy of what I'm going to do that is fuller than the Exodus. I'm going to deliver you in a better way than God delivered his people in the Exodus. Okay? Does that make sense? So what I want to do real quickly, um, just because, is go back to Exodus, because we've been talking about this a lot, and it occurred to me that maybe we need to look at Exodus. You know, not everybody has read Exodus lately. And Exodus is one of those fun books that's really fun to read until it's boring. And then you give up. No, very few people finish Exodus, because it gets really hard to read. But the first half is great. Okay, but we're going to skip the first part. So just start at Exodus 12. We'll just really quickly. All right, Exodus 12, the very end of 12. 1243. Exodus 1243 on to the first half of 13 is what? It's the Passover. Okay, so this is where he gives the Passover to Moses. Now they're still in... Yeah. Okay. So at, at 51 is when they actually leave Egypt. So when he gives them, you know, they're, this is kind of a foreshadowing and all that kind of stuff. So they're going to leave Egypt. In 13, then we have the, the unleavened bread and then G- Jesus appearing to the people of God as uh, cloud and fire. Right? It's okay, Gene. My phone reads to me too. It's, it's totally cool. It's actually great. Your phones can read to you. The Bible, which is great. Okay, Exodus 14 is the Red Sea. Good. And what did Jesus do at the beginning of the passage in John 6? He crossed the sea. And then in Exodus 14, they're crossing a sea. See what I mean? You kind of go, huh, interesting. We have a Passover and a crossing of a sea. We have a Passover and a crossing of a sea. This is strange. Or not. Okay, Exodus 15 is singing. Yay! They're good Lutherans, so they sing. And then 16 is what? Bread from heaven. Isn't that weird? So now, God, they're going to cross the sea, pass over, and there's a feeding. Kind of sounds like John 6, doesn't it? And then you go on. 17, we'll get there later. 18, do you guys know what happens in 18? (coughs) 
Moses is told to divide the people into small groups. What does Jesus do with the feeding of the 5,000? He divides them into smaller groups and have them sit down. Okay? 19, where are we? We're on Mount Sinai. And where does the feeding of the 5,000 take place? On a mountain. Okay? So this is what I want you to see is all of this stuff, all of this history is quickly recapitulated in John 6 for us to read and go, there you go. Moses wrote about Jesus. If you want evidence, here you go. So then, keep going with me. Exodus 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Okay, then Moses and God are hanging out. Go to Exodus 24, verse 11. Exodus 24, 11. Okay, they beheld God and ate and drank. Well, what are they doing on this mountain here in John 6? They're looking at Jesus, who is God in the flesh among them. And what are they going to do? Great. What did you guys just do? Some of you. Some of you are going to do it later, but some of us just did it. We said, behold, the Lamb of God. We saw him up there on the altar, and then we went up and we and we drank. Did God smash us? No. See, it says, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They saw God and they ate and they drank. This is what happens when God invites you into his presence and his mercy in Christ is he doesn't pour out his wrath on you. Instead, he feeds you. Right? That's the Lord's Supper. Okay? So all of this stuff, and yes, John expects his readers to be able to do all this quickly, is why John is telling the story the way he is. This is John's little nuance to the way to tell the story of the feeding of 5,000 is to tell it with echoes of Exodus. So, any questions or thoughts from that? Do you guys see that? There's more. Number three, why did the disciples gather up what was not eaten? So nothing was wasted. <laughs> Which is funny because at the beginning of the story, they're not concerned about wasting. They're concerned about enough. enough. Now that Jesus is done with the whole thing, they've got too much. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Jesus, they're out of wine. Now we've got 125 gallons of wine. What are we do with all this? One of the one of the signs of the, the age of the Messiah is abundance. Abundance. When Messiah comes, we will be waiting for the harvest because we'll have so much food to eat that by the time the harvest comes, we're not done eating what was left from last year yet. We won't be living paycheck to paycheck and week to week and month to month. There'll be so much abundance that every meal will be a feast. And you won't have to work for any of it. 
It's not by the sweat of your brow and the work of your hands. Because when Messiah comes, every tree will bear fruit constantly. The richest affair. And so when Jesus comes and he provides the people, it's not that everyone had a nibble and convinced themselves that was enough. No, they ate and they were satisfied, satiated. So much so that there was extra leftovers. So they had cold turkey turkey sandwiches and watched the light game. Right? That's what they did. Now, there's more. Go to John 21. You guys know the story? John 21. What happened in John 19 and 20? You guys know it's the end of the gospel. What had to happen? He died. He died and he rose. So John 21 is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Okay, it's actually the third one in some ways. Um, and look what it says. 21 verse 1. And Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Strange name for the Sea of Galilee, unless he's trying to get us to think ahead to John 21. And what's going to happen in John 21? They're out fishing, and they've caught absolutely nothing. Nothing. They got nothing. They're professional fishermen who catch nothing. This isn't good. They're in need. And Jesus shows up and he says, Hey, why don't you just cast your side, your note, your net to the other side of the boat? And they go, What do you think? We're idiots? You think we didn't think of that already? But they do it, because you know, when fishermen have nothing, what are you gonna do? Throw your net over there. And what happens? Abundance. Their nets are so full, right? They have trouble dragging them in. And then here's the thing. What do they eat? And bread. Verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Bread, fish. John 6, bread, fish. Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Tiberias. And guess what? When Jesus gives, there's abundance. And so what happens is they actually go drag the rest of the fish up on shore, which they don't need because Jesus already has enough bread and fish for them. But these 150, how many? 153 fish. Why do you know that number? Because apparently there's 153 fish. John counted them. It's like, wow, there's a lot of fish here. How many think that is? They're like, well, I counted 153. What you got? Right? So he wrote it down because there's an abundance of fish. And so 
not only is John 6 written to help us look back to the Exodus, it's also saying this is the one who through his death and resurrection, through his death and resurrection, is the Passover lamb, he is the Exodus of God, and he is the Messiah who comes to bring abundance. That's who this Jesus is. Watch him. Listen to him. Trust him. He's the one Moses wrote about. He's the one that's all of this stuff you've been hoping for. It's all in him. And when he's dead on a cross, don't think that he stopped that whole mission. No, he's actually fulfilling it. That's what John 6 is teaching us. Okay? Now, the weird thing is, John, John 21, most people interpret the fish to be the mission of the church. Cast your net out. To the apostles. Cast your net out. And what will happen? A harvest that you had dragged into the shore that you drag in. And so not only the abundance us, the abundance of the Messiah is the church. He's calling new believers every day. Every single day. And you're part of that. Your witness. Your love. Right? Your life. Teaching your children the faith. Encouraging your spouse. Encouraging your friends. Encouraging your co-workers. Right? Spreading the gospel. You're part of that harvest. Right, number four. What was the result of this sign? They want to make him king, which is in verse 15. And in verse 14, they say, he's a prophet. So now all of a sudden, they're seeing Jesus as prophet and king. Deuteronomy 18. What's the promise in Deuteronomy 18? What's that? I'll raise up. Good. Excellent. Very good. Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up a prophet from among your brothers. This is Moses saying it. Who's actually greater than I am. And now Jesus does this connected with Moses and the people say, you're the prophet. And so what do they want to do with him? Make him king. They want to make him king. And how does Pilate make Jesus king? What's that? You wrote King of Jews. Yeah, right. He actually writes it on the cross. He says, "This is Jesus, the King of the Jews." And they put a crown of thorns on his head to crown him as such. And in the Synoptic Gospels, they also make explicit mention of the robe, right? The purple robe. So this is all the Gospels. This whole enthronement of Jesus is not just a John issue. It's actually in all the Gospels that Jesus is enthroned as King on his cross. That's not what these people are thinking at this point. But it is what Jesus is thinking. Okay? So, if number five. How is 6, 1 to 14 different than 9 or 5 verses 19 to 47? What happens in John 5? What do they do? Yes. They're rejecting Jesus in 5. In 6, what are they doing? They think he's a prophet and they're going to make him king. What's the difference? Religious people, kind of a 
Yeah, they might be involved in the other two. What's the difference? He did a sign, and they liked the sign, although it was in the Sabbath. It kind of freaked them out. But what happens in chapter 5? Just look at your Bibles. Anybody have a red letter edition Bible? Just, okay, I don't like those, but just for this time, sometimes it's helpful. This is the one where you can be dead son. Well, that's what my title is. Yes. And, and look at John 5, verses 19 through 47. What color are the words? They're red. That means Jesus is talking. In John 6, verses 1 through 14, what color are the words? They're black because Jesus isn't talking. Guess what's going to happen throughout the book? When Jesus talks, people go, we don't like you. When Jesus gives them things, they go, we like you. Shut up and give us more stuff. This is actually what's going to happen at the end of 6. The same people who want to make him king, they go, this teaching is tough. We can't follow this. Because he's going to stand up in front of them and say, if you really want food, you have to eat my body. If you want drink, you've got to drink my blood. If you don't do those things, you can't live. And they say, uh, we're going to find a different prophet who doesn't demand us to eat his body and drink his blood? Because that's weird. Okay? So this is the other thing we're encountering in the Gospel of John is that when Jesus goes around and does miracles, people are like, wow, that's great, that's cool. And when he speaks, people say, ooh, whoa, that's weird. I don't like that. And what happens to the church? Don't be preaching the gospel. Don't be talking about sin. Just keep your mouth shut and give me something. Feed the poor. Your job is to help the community. Your job is to be out there feeding the poor. Your job is out there to be clothing the naked. Your job is to be out there. You shouldn't be talking about this Jesus stuff. You should just be serving. Isn't that what your God says? And a lot of times the church agrees with that. They're like, yeah, we'll just be the outreach community thing. And so don't tell them about Jesus because we're just going to feed them. Excuse me? It's not our mission. Our mission is not to feed the hungry. What's our mission? Proclaim the good news. Tell the good news about Jesus. Yeah, and that's the problem. Are we ever going to feed the hungry? Nope. What does Jesus say? Poor you'll always have with you. We're not going to run out of poor. And that's not the solution we have to give them. Right? It's not about giving them food. It's about giving them Jesus. And I know it's hard, and I know people reject what I'm saying, but if you, if you look at the way the Gospels present Christ and the way Paul talks about it, the mission of the church is Christ. And these other things might be a way that we love and serve to show the love of Christ, but we can't ever do those things as the goal. And that's what will happen in churches. You'll actually see this, where churches will actually change their preaching in order to make people the object of their mission. Well, we don't want to, we want everybody to come in, so we're not going to talk about sin because that offends people. 
well, what exactly are they coming for then? Right? What do we have if we don't have Jesus? If we're not going to tell people the truth about sin and grace and forgiveness, about what God is doing, about who God is, then why would they come here? I mean, y'all are cool, but you can find cool people other places to hang out with. So part of, part of the difficulty of the Gospel of John is that when Jesus talks, people get mad and they walk away. But what does Peter say? Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. See, what Peter, Peter doesn't say, Jesus, we would like to leave too, so could you just stop talking and give us more pizza? He doesn't say that. He actually says, I don't even understand your words, but I know that when you speak, those are eternal life words. So at the end of 6, Peter says, Jesus has eternal life in his words. In John 5, he says, you're reading the Holy Scriptures because in them you think there's life. See, the whole point is we're looking for life and it's found in words. And now the question is, whose words do you believe? And the answer is Jesus. Believe Jesus' words. So when Jesus is the one who dies on the cross, and he says, it is finished. Believe him. When he says, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Believe him. When he says to the apostles, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. And then you hear a pastor saying, your sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done on the cross. Believe it. Because those are eternal life things. And those words will give you life. So when you open the scriptures and you read them, believe them. They're eternal life words. Even if you don't like them. Even if they don't make sense to you. Believe them. Because the one who speaks them is eternal life. He is your life. And he says it. The disciples are like, Jesus, we got to be honest. We have no idea what you've been talking about for the last two and a half years. Right? This is the upper room. He's talking. He's summing the whole thing up. He's thinking, I've been a good teacher. Right? I've, I've been doing my best with these people. And they start asking questions. Jesus goes, are you out of your mind? Have you not been with me all this time and you still don't get it? And they go, not only do we not get it, we don't even know how to get to where we're supposed to go to get it. And Jesus goes, I'm the way, the truth, the life. See, they're still looking for some kind of method, some kind of path, some kind of, and Jesus says, it's me. And so that's what John 6 is getting us to see, is that it's this continued theme from John 5 of Jesus saying, all this stuff that God has been doing, all this stuff that God will do, it's all me. And it's all the stuff that I'm going to give to you. Okay? So let's read, just real quick, I know what time it is. So let's read John, actually I'll read it. John 15, or 6, verse 15 through 21. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. 
when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So, number six, who walks on water? Jesus does in the story, but in general... Yeah, nobody I know. Yeah, exactly. And what does that mean? They think they are. They think they're God because who walks on water? Only God. Okay? Job. And I've literally forgotten where it is in Job, so I'm, I'm trying to think really fast. I think it's in Job 9. I'm going to hope it's in Job 9 at this point. I think it is. I really feel like it is. Yeah, Job 9, verse 8. I knew it was something like that, like some number that's right next to each other. Job 9, verse 8. Well, let's just start with verse 2. This is Job. It says, Truly I know that it is so. How can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, meaning God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise and hard and mighty in strength, who has ascended, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, they know it not. This is God. When he overturns in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and his pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heaven and trampled the waves of the sea. This is Job describing Yahweh. So who is the one who tramples on the sea? Only Yahweh. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes trampling on the sea and the disciples freak out. Okay, so again, this is John continuing to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all this discussion of the Old Testament. When Job is describing God, he's describing Jesus. <clears throat> Which is amazing. At the end of Job, what happens? Job repents of all of the things he's said and repents before Yahweh. And the response is that God gives him gifts. Okay? So, again, even in the walking on water, John is wanting us to see that, that Jesus is here portrayed as the God about whom the Old Testament was written. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Gospel of John that teaches us once again to focus on Christ, to trust in his words to be your words, and that in all of these words, we have eternal life because of the promises you have made and the promises you have kept because you love us so much. Thank you for the death and resurrection of Christ that forgives our sins. Let us live in the peace and joy of this love. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you all.